Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Tangled Roots podcast, a podcast about the root causes of migration from Latin America. My name is Joseph Flores, and I'm your host. Since this is our first episode, I want to start with a broad sense of the relationship between the United States and Central America, our area of focus. It hasn't always been a smooth relationship. Certainly, we have a complex history in Central America. That's Ricardo Lozuniga, special representative to the Northern Triangle for the Biden administration. And that history that he's referring to includes interventions, coups, wars, and some cooperation, though all typically at the expense of the region's poor and indigenous populations. It's a difficult past to confront. But luckily, our guest today isn't shy about telling historical truths. In fact, it's at the heart of her recent book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Aviva Chomsky, Professor of History and Coordinator of the Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean Studies Program at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Now, before we start, I want to make a point here that stands for the entirety of the podcast. The point of this show is not to blame all of Central America's woes on the United States. As Dr. Chomsky notes, We should not excuse the governments of Central America and the elites of Central America for their collaboration with these projects. At the same time, my goal is also not to simply shame the governments of the region, either. My point is to think critically about how the United States has engaged with Central America in that past so that we can improve going forward. The Biden administration's root causes strategy is just the latest in a long series of efforts to shape the region's future. And those efforts have built some bad habits. To put it plainly, the United States helped create the conditions causing people to flee Central America through decades of both aid and intervention. To address the root causes of migration, the United States must look at its own history and learn from its mistakes. Dr. Aviva Chomsky, thank you for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. So we have a wide swath of history to get to today, but I want to start in 1904 when then-President Theodore Roosevelt issued an announcement during his State of the Union. This announcement would come to be known as the Roosevelt Corollary and have major implications for the United States' relationship with Latin America and especially Central America and the Caribbean. What was the Roosevelt Corollary and why did Teddy Roosevelt make it a part of his foreign policy? So to start talking about the Roosevelt Corollary, we should just start actually by going back even further to talk about the Monroe Doctrine back in 1823. The Monroe Doctrine claimed the U.S. right to intervene in Latin America to keep European powers out. What the Roosevelt Corollary does to add on to this says we will intervene in Latin America not only to supposedly protect Latin American countries, not only in the case of European intervention, but also if Latin American governments are following internal policies that we disapprove of. He specifically mentions if a Latin American country fails to keep order and if it fails to basically protect the interests of U.S. corporations. So a Latin American government that to repress a labor mobilization, for example, could prompt a U.S. intervention in favor of U.S. investors. 
One of the reasons is that in 1823, the United States has practically no economic presence in Latin America. The United States has only existed for 50 years or less, and U.S. corporations just either don't exist or don't have that kind of global reach. But by the end of the 19th century, U.S. corporations have a huge presence, especially in Central America and the Caribbean. We have the United Fruit Company, we have utility companies, we have mining companies, we have this enormous U.S. presence, economic presence, that is private U.S. interests in the Cuban sugar industry, in the Mexican mining industry. And there is a lot of popular resistance and protest and mobilization by peasants against their lands being taken by U.S. corporations, by workers who are protesting mistreatment, looking for better conditions. So that's what the Roosevelt Corollary is trying to respond to, is the interests of U.S. businesses that now have major holdings in Latin America, especially Mexico, Caribbean, and Central America. And I should mention that neither of these are treaties or commitments under international law or anything like that. They're just statements by U.S. presidents saying what the U.S. believes it has the right to do. You mentioned the United Fruit Company, which was a U.S. corporation that, for nearly half a century, dominated the region's political and economic development for its own profit and gain. How did the United Fruit Company gain such a foothold in Central America? And what were the consequences specifically on the economies of the Northern Triangle? The U.S. government didn't really play a strong role in getting the United Fruit Company into the countries. Mm -hmm. The United Fruit Company was not actually in El Salvador at all because it entered Central America from the Atlantic side, from the Caribbean. And one of the reasons that it was able to take over so much land in the Caribbean without having to even interact much with the governments of those countries, and that would be particularly Panama, Costa Rica, to a lesser extent, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Honduras, is because their capital cities are in the Pacific-facing highlands, and their largest populations, their elites, their cities are all sort of Pacific-facing. The Atlantic Caribbean regions have actually historically kind of a zone of refuge for Afro-descended and indigenous peoples and much more economically connected to the Caribbean than to the national states. Most of those countries didn't even have any land communication between the capital city and their Atlantic coasts until very late in the 20th century. So United Fruit was able to come in by making deals with governments. And we should not excuse the governments of Central America and the elites of Central America for their collaboration with these projects. Everywhere in Central America, but certainly in the three countries you just mentioned, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, the elites are very committed to a model of economic development based on foreign loans, expropriation of peasant lands, forced agricultural labor, and the development of a plantation economy. And their collaboration with the external investors wanting to develop the same kind of economy, same kind of dispossession, same kind of exploitative labor relationships. There was a, definitely a harmony of interests there. They didn't require force on the part of the U.S. government to do that. It's only later that nationalist reactions against the United Fruit Company start to come into play. It starts to call on the U.S. government to defend its interests.
To this point about the continued relevance of U.S. corporations in Central America, I want to talk briefly about the Good Neighbor Policy, which was announced by then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933. The Good Neighbor Policy ostensibly recognized the United States' history as an imperial power in the region and committed to changing its ways, being a, quote, good neighbor. My question is, did this have a material impact in terms of the model of economic development in the region, or was this shift mostly a change in the United States' posturing? So the period from the Roosevelt Corollary through the Depression, we could say, the first two, three decades of the 20th century were ones of repeated U.S. military interventions in Central America and the Caribbean, including long occupations in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, U.S. military rule in those countries, and the establishment imposition of dictatorships in the three countries where the U.S. military spent such a long time. So the good neighbor policy was basically, it sounded like a reversal, but it wasn't really a reversal. It sounded like a reversal because it stated that the United States is not going to intervene in Central America anymore. We're going to accept the governments that Central America has. We'll deal with anybody. We're not going to insist on imposing our own governments in Central America. That sounds kind of good, except that if you look at the history of the first three decades of the 20th century, what the United States has done is made sure that every Central American and Caribbean country had a friendly, dictatorial, anti-democratic government. And I say anti-democratic very deliberately because what the United States is most afraid of is democracy in Central America. That is popular rule, actual rights for the majority of the population who are poor. The majority of the population are peasants. They are the majority. So democracy would mean that they should have a voice. And they're exactly the people that U.S. corporations don't want to have a voice. So when the United States says we're not going to intervene anymore, um, we're just going to uh, accept the governments that exist. Well, the United States now has all the governments that it wants in charge in Central America. And, you know, we can look at the Somoza dictatorship in Nicaragua as an example. Roosevelt says, oh, we're going to be a good neighbor. We're going to be friends with Somoza. We don't care if he's repressive and massacres people. And we don't care what he does because we don't intervene anymore. So there's something very cynical about the good neighbor policy. The good neighbor policy lasts until the end of World War II, when anti-communism rushes in and takes over in the minds of U.S. policymakers. So the good neighbor policy goes out the window. Now it's, we can't allow anybody into any position of power if we think they are communist. And in places that are so unequal and so repressive, when workers and peasants fight for their rights, the United States sees them as communist because they are challenging the capitalist system. The most notorious case of that is in the 1950s, Guatemala, which is the first time that United Fruit is confronted with a progressive elected government that wants to carry out land reform and labor reforms, granting the rights of unionization, actually encouraging unionization, encouraging peasant organization, and expropriating large amounts of, of uncultivated land from large landholders and compensating them based on the value of their land as they declared it in their tax returns. 
United Fruit launched a huge propaganda campaign in the United States and in the U.S. Congress to accuse the Guatemalan government of communism. You've just described how the changes that Guatemalan President Jacobo Arbenz was putting forward, looking to advance the power and rights of workers, ultimately brought him into the crosshairs of the United States. The U.S. would go on to overthrow Arbenz in the CIA-sponsored coup titled Operation PP Success in 1954. The CIA then installed a military regime in its place, and nearly four decades of civil war and dictatorship followed. You mention in your book that El Salvador acts as a counterexample to Guatemala. Could you talk a little bit about that and describe what were the differences between these two countries that El Salvador was able to stay in the United States' good graces? During those decades of the first decades of the 20th century, we have a lot of popular mobilization in opposition to U.S. occupation in places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua and in opposition to the economic model being imposed by the United States hand-in-hand hand with Latin American elites in the places where the United States is not occupied. A parallel to the Guatemalan Revolution of 1944, which is what ended many years of dictatorship in Guatemala, in El Salvador, there's also a lot of social and political agitation. El Salvador is much smaller and more densely populated than Guatemala. As I mentioned, it's Pacific facing, so it doesn't have these large expanses of land out towards the Atlantic that are essentially not governed by the government. So its economy is focused on coffee. It has its own series of liberal and military dictatorships, and it also has social movements agitating social change. El Salvador has more of an urban working class than any of the other countries, also partly because of its size and because of the way its economic development has worked and its dense population. So we have urban workers' movements and rural peasant movements and indigenous movements in El Salvador during the early decades of the 20th century that coalesce in the early 1930s into an uprising, which the military dictatorship puts down with such vicious repression that we can compare it to the kind of repression that happened in Guatemala in the 1980s in terms of this idea that indigenous people are communists. It's spurred by the same kind of red scare anti-communist ideology. You know, in 1930 and in the 1950s and even in the 1980s, I think there's like very long-standing racist ideas about indigenous people being, you know, primitive and savage. And then those get overlaid with 20th century or mostly 20th century ideologies about well, they're also communist. You know, they share land, they're rebelling against the plantation system. So these two sort of strains of racist thought against indigenous people come together, enabling in the 1932 Matanza in, in El Salvador, the slaughter of probably between 10 and 30,000 people and a real concerted attack on indigenous languages, indigenous villages, indigenous identity that really pushed indigeneity underground in El Salvador for many, many decades, primarily in Western El Salvador. It takes populations a long time to recover from that kind of repression. And we really don't see until the 1970s a sort of revival of popular organizing in El Salvador. And interestingly, 
it's not in Western El Salvador. It's not in those indigenous areas that had been so severely repressed in the 1930s. It's mostly in Eastern El Salvador where we start seeing peasant organizing, liberation theology. You know, this is happening everywhere in Central America, but we can see distinctively in El Salvador that those who suffered the brunt of the repression in 1930, those communities still in the 1960s and 70s are very reluctant to mobilize what remains of those communities and their descendants. Something we've been circling around that I want to make explicit is that the United States' support for military regimes in Central America not only had political implications, but economic ones as well. By supporting the military regimes, the United States comes down firmly on the side not only of the political elites, but the economic elites as well, and in support of their economic model. Could you talk about the economic implications for the United States' support for the military regimes in Central America and the ways that support went beyond being just a political decision? In Guatemala, the lesson the United States took is like, we're still really powerful and we can stamp out any threats to our interest in Guatemala easily. In Cuba, five years later, in 1959, 60, 61, they learned a different lesson, like, oh, actually, it's not that easy. And of course, the Cuban revolutionaries learned from the Guatemalan example. Che Guevara was in Guatemala in 1954. One of Arbenz's decisions was, we are not going to arm the population and create popular militias to resist U.S. invasion. He did not want a bloodbath in his country. But in Cuba, the government from the very beginning said, we are going to be invaded by the United States. If we want to resist this, we have to have the entire population mobilized and armed to stand up to the United States. Indeed, when the U.S. sponsored a you know, kind of similar type of invasion in the Bay of Pigs in 1961, it was repelled immediately. They were driven out. So the Kennedy administration looked at Latin America and saw this terrible threat of revolution everywhere in Latin America and kind of designed a new set of policies for the 1960s to avoid revolution. And there were two sides to this, kind of the carrot and the stick. The carrot is this slew of organizations like the Alliance for Progress, the Peace Corps, the idea that by bringing particular types of aid, particular types of capitalist economic development, we can prove to the Latin American poor, you know, we're going to bring economic aid to promote capitalist development that will help Latin America transcend poverty, and then no one will want revolution. The problem is that the kind of economic development they were promoting precisely export-oriented agriculture, which had already over and over again proven that it did not raise the, um, the standards of living of Central America or Latin America's poor. And the other side of the Kennedy project was counterinsurgency. That is, we also have to do psychological operations. We have to have the CIA everywhere. You know, we have to have voice, voice of America. We have to develop much tighter relations with the militaries. We have to train the militaries to see communism everywhere and how to root it out. If you just look at an institution like the U.S. Army School for the Americas, where so many of the Central American military were trained in the 1970s and 1980s, who went on to be either dictators themselves, 
or high army officials in charge of atrocities in Central America, the massacre of Archbishop Romero, the massacre of El Mosote, the Jesuit massacre in 1989, those in charge of the dirty war in Guatemala. Um, so many of them were trained at the School for the Americas. So this is the counterinsurgency side. The economic implication of, of the um, Alliance for Progress and US Agency for International Development that that poured money into economic development in Central America, um, primarily focused on the promotion of new export crops, especially the beef industry. It's not a crop, but agricultural products, expanding the beef industry and expanding the cotton industry. Strangely enough, and this happens with a lot of US foreign aid, this required a lot of purchase of US inputs. So, you know, the United States gives money to Central American governments, but they're required to spend it on buying U.S. products. So U.S. pesticide industries, fertilizer industries, agricultural machinery industries, slaughterhouse building up to USDA standards. There's a lot of money poured into Central America to foment these industries. But what does this mean for the poor? Basically, it means another round of displacement in the case of cotton, forced labor, and the mechanisms of force change over the course of the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, force has to be direct. That is, peasants still have access to enough land and little enough dependence on a cash economy that they have to be literally forced through vagrancy laws, through debt peonage. But by the end of the 20th century, many peasants are forced through structural causes rather than through direct governmental repression. They're forced because they have no land because of desertification of their land. Of course, debt still continues to play a role in Central America. So this is the economic model. And um, most historians agree that in fact, this push for economic development was one of the key factors that actually pushed the populations into further and further desperation and in to the formation of the revolutionary movements that start during this same period and grow in the late 70s and early 80s in Guatemala and El Salvador. And in this way, we can understand the revolutionary movements as resistance against an economic model that had been pushed by the United States and U.S. corporations. When the United States intervenes on behalf of the military regimes, it's also taking a side in that economic debate, a debate the regimes won through conflict and massacres. Once the wars end and the peace treaties are signed, this logic of reliance on export agriculture really comes away as the primary victor. The new governments that enter in the 1990s double down on what we commonly refer to as neoliberalism, which can be summarized as the removal of trade barriers in order to allow the entry of foreign capital and the easy exportation of agricultural goods and other cheap commodities. Could you talk about how these changes began? What changed after the peace treaties were signed and what doors for neoliberalism were opened once the conflicts were ended? You know, the United States ended its war in Nicaragua in 1990 with the 1990 election. And then peace treaties were signed in 1992 in El Salvador, and 1996 in Guatemala. And the peace treaties ended the wars 
And that was actually important for U.S. investors to have more stable political conditions. They did bring about political change. There were truth commissions. But what the peace treaties did not really address were some of the main issues that had led to revolution in the first place, in particular, the rights of peasants and workers, land rights and labor rights. A lot of the structural causes of revolution were not only not addressed by the peace treaties, but the peace treaties by the ground for neoliberalism, really, laid the ground for exacerbating a lot of those conditions. You know, the left laid down its arms. There was no longer an armed challenge. The Nicaraguan government is no longer supporting the revolutionary project, the revolutionary socioeconomic project. And the armed groups that were resisting the socioeconomic project in El Salvador and Guatemala laid down their arms. So in a way, there's no resistance left to it. And I shouldn't say no, but much less threatening resistance. And the signing of CAFTA, the Central America Free Trade Agreement in 2005, really institutionalizes a lot of this. Cutting down barriers to foreign investment, um, but especially creating privileges for foreign investors in these countries. So what rights do governments have in terms of sovereignty over multinational corporations that operate in their territory? Can a government implement labor protections? Can a government implement land protections? Those are the two key issues, land rights and labor rights. And according to CAFTA, and according to the International Monetary Fund, which all of these countries are heavily indebted, they have to follow this neoliberal model of cutting back on social spending um, and granting privileges to foreign capital. The 1990s could also be seen as the, the decade of debt and structural adjustment, where the countries are so indebted to these international institutions that they basically have no sovereignty over their own economic policies because of the restrictions imposed on them by international financial institutions. So what happens if a government wants to raise social spending, grant rights to workers or to peasants? Well, in the new World Trade Organization rules, and especially the regulations of CAFTA, um, it's considered an infringement on the rights of foreign corporations if a country tries to do something to protect its own citizens from the depredations of corporations. So something like raising the minimum wage, something like guaranteeing peasant land rights is a violation of these rules that are imposed outside. So sovereignty is really deeply compromised, no matter who is in government. Their sovereignty is really strictly limited by these international agencies and international agreements. Some of the economic sectors that have been really heavily promoted under CAFTA, new forms of export agriculture, what they call now non-traditional exports, fruits and vegetables, palm oil, which is used as biofuel in the United States. Tourism is really heavily promoted which again means basically expropriation and exploitation of poor people. The maquiladora industry, the creation of export processing zones where the laws of the country don't even apply at all so that U.S. companies can outsource the labor-intensive or environmentally destructive stages of their production and outsource those to poor countries where the people have no rights to, to protest. I should also just say about export agriculture, CAFTA also protects U.S. agricultural exporters, especially the corn industry, because corn 
as I'm sure you know, is the subsistence crop all over Central America. Governments have had to protect small corn farmers. Now they can't do that anymore. And the United States is dumping huge quantities of subsidized industrially produced corn. And that is actually one of the main thing that's driving peasants out of rural areas is the fact that they cannot subsist on their corn production anymore because there's no markets, because the markets are flooded with cheap subsidized corn. Their governments can't subsidize, but the United States can subsidize its big producers. David Bacon called Mexican migrants after NAFTA, primarily indigenous peasants from southern Mexico who were displaced by precisely parallel system in NAFTA. He called them refugees from NAFTA. You described a situation in which Central American governments and economies are limited by free trade agreements that prevent them from making structural changes to their economies, changes that would allow them to protect workers, raise wages, and improve living conditions for smallholder farmers and other folks. In this context, migration becomes in some ways the only option, and if not the only option, really the smartest economic decision that many communities in Central America can make in order to improve their livelihoods and economic outlooks. As we wrap up, could you talk a bit about migration and the role that it plays in the economies of the Northern Triangle? both at the level of individual households and at the national level. So migration is structurally a really key part of the neoliberal system in both the United States and in Central America. The degradation of labor in the United States and the deunionization of labor in the United States and the shrinking proportion of the national income that's going to the working class in the United States, that system is heavily reliant not only on free trade agreements that enable companies to move to Central America, but also migrant workers who fill now the lower ranks of those industries. In addition to outsourcing, there's also insourcing. Um, which we see especially in the meat industry, and I call it insourcing, because like with outsourcing, companies close down heavily regulated, heavily unionized industries in major urban centers. But instead of moving them to Mexico or Central America with insourcing, they're moved to rural areas in the United States, where there's no history of unionization in states that have fewer regulations. As the degradation of the U.S labor force is going on, that also means that workers have to outsource more of their own work. People end up being reliant on things like fast foods, they're reliant on childcare, they're reliant on elder care, and those things have to be cheap in order for U.S. employers to keep wages low. Those things are also cheapened by insourcing them to migrant workers. So migrant workers play a key role in the system here. They also play a key role in the system in Central America because, as you pointed out, they're a major economic support. They are, in fact, the major economic support as governments have been forced to privatize and cut back. In Central America, government cutbacks mean that remittances are one of the only sources of social support that the poor have. U.S. companies are also able to profit from those remittances because they don't have to pay decent wages in Central America because Central Americans in Central America can rely on remittances to supplement the low wages that they're getting from U.S. companies. So it really is a very neatly integrated system. Not to mention the fact that many of these remittances flow through U.S. companies like Western Union who were able to profit off these support networks. Absolutely. 
Dr. Chomsky of Salem State University. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It was a pleasure. That's our show for today. Over the course of Volume 1, we'll return to many of the topics discussed here with Dr. Chomsky. Next week, we'll take a look at the issue of food insecurity in Guatemala, which, as discussed, has been deeply shaped by food programs and international trade agreements pushed by the United States. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is produced by myself in collaboration with the Strauss Center for International Security and Law. My name is Joseph Flores, and this is Tangled Roots.